Hi, welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. My name is Austin Chadwick and co-host is Chris Lucian. And uh, we're going to have a good time with uh, Paul Moore today on the show. Uh, we'll be hitting, uh, we have some great targets. We may not get to them all, but uh, too, you know, we got a lot of good stuff here. So talking about certifications, uh, talking about mob programming and the certified Scrum developer uh, course. And if there's time, we'll get into some story splitting uh, techniques and value, and maybe talk about the whole in Scrum. Uh, but before we jump to that, uh, Paul, uh, we're going to ask you to introduce yourself. But before you do, I uh, do want to mention that uh, Paul has been on the show before, um, but it was uh, he was part of the mob um, in a live programming thing at uh, an Agile Open. So we'll put that in the show notes. And it's one of our most popular videos. So thank you, Paul. <laughs> um and uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, maybe you can give an introduction for yourself, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Austin. And hey, Chris, um, I'm Paul Moore. I'm a technical agile coach, which, you know, the people in this world know what I mean. But what I really mean is that I'm an agile coach who still codes. Um, I, I know a large number of agile coaches are like, I used to code, but I somehow got away from it and I'm afraid of it. And you know, I, I found that there's still a need for us people that can talk directly with the developers in the code base about what's going on, about how to be more effective. So I, I've been doing this for about five years, but I've got Agile experience going back to the early 2000s. I've got about a decade of pre-Agile experience that taught me that there had to be a better way to do development. And that's when I discovered extreme programming. And my mission now is really just to help people coming into the industry today learn all this good stuff that we figured out 20 years ago, because it's it's still not entrenched the way I thought it would be. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I had a similar experience of doing it other ways for quite a while. And so yeah, I'm with <laughs> you there uh, with discovering extreme programming and other things. So yeah, that, that's fantastic. And um, yeah, and so since uh, one of the topics um, that we were going to talk about was uh, mob programming in a certification uh, a training course for certified Scrum developer. Um, I think uh, we were discussing uh, before the show, hey, it might be good to talk about the elephant in the room with certifications at all. So uh, yeah, what were your thoughts here, uh, Paul? <laughs> yeah, so it, it struck me again, I was seeing on some of the media feeds this week that people are just like poo-pooing certifications. Like yeah. they're coming from a position that, you know, certifications are crap. I can't believe people are doing that. And I just think it's like a, a position of cynicism and privilege that they're coming from. That I agree, attending a two-day class and getting a check mark and saying you're certified isn't the best thing. But you know, the the managers and the organizations that are coming to us, they want help. You know, they're struggling with how to be better at software development. And they could, you know, find a random person or find the best person who doesn't offer a certified class. But they're kind of going to the big organizations that offer certifications, the Scrum Alliances, the Scrum.orgs, the SAFEs, whatever, with the best intentions. And rather than me saying, yeah, no, I'm just going to ignore where the entire market is, <laughs> I'm going to try and help that market. And that's kind of my position with offering the Certified Scrum Developer Training. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I like about that is there is balance there, right? I mean, uh, um if you take two day course in anything, uh, it would, you know, to call it a, I guess I'm trying to think where it came from. Is it like, you know, certified by the government to be qualified to do something or something like that. Right. But, you know, with, comp with software development being so complex, 
you know, two, two days is probably not enough to become expert in hardly anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, my part of my journey is um, I was at a traditional company and they were looking to improve and I got signed up for a certification course. And through that uh, certified scrum developer course, I learned about extreme programming. And before I didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I learned about pairing, learned about refactoring, learned about test-driven development, learned about mobbing. And um, and so I found, you know, uh, you know, the the training within the certification uh course uh was a humongous game changer for me. Um uh the certification itself, I'm not sure, but <laughs> but uh, so at least part of me, I, I'm not, you know, maybe is is the certification like a, a a marketing strategy, almost like it's like a gateway to good stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> for people who think in that style, or I don't know, what are your guys' thoughts? <laughs> well, and I, I think the certification just guarantees a baseline. Mm. So with the Scrum Alliance courses, at least they offer the learning objectives, the things that you're guaranteed to cover. Mm. But within each trainer, how we cover it, what we actually offer. You know, you talked about pairing. In my class, we do mobbing because Mm -hmm. the learning objective is really about how to collaborate and work together as a team. Doesn't say pairing, doesn't say mobbing, yet we found those are effective ways to do it. Mm. So that, you know, that's definitely on on par with what you saw there. I don't know, Chris, if you have any thoughts. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, I would just say, like, um, certifications, I think, uh, have, you know, so so like one thing, you know, I I think, I I haven't really talked about this on the show, but I talk a lot to people about vocabulary being super important. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of developers and coaches just refer to things by the wrong name. Um, and so at, at a very base level, it's like exposure to vocabulary, which, um, I think I hold, uh, pretty dearly. It's like, um, and so, cause, cause I think that a lot of people do themselves a disservice by not using proper vocabulary when describing something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you refer to something, uh, you know, maybe as like a thingy or that, that chunk of the software or, I, you know, entering filler words for architectural patterns, design patterns, uh, interpersonal patterns um, can can be really damaging. And I think that uh, that, you know, at the very least, somebody like very entry level um, would, you know, for two days, you know, like you said, Austin, you get exposed to the vocabulary. And so it's like, oh, I didn't really think to look into that. And then all of a sudden it opens up a whole world to you. So um, I think if it's like, you know, from zero to whatever, uh, then certs can be really good. Um, and I think that, you know, m- my, my concern with certs, uh, is more on the opposite end where it's like, I won't, a, a employer won't talk to somebody unless they have a cert like that. Um, I, I think that, you know, j- just like a degree, right. So it's like, if you're going to be hiring somebody and they don't have a, a degree, but they have, you know, 15 years of experience in the industry, it's like, does it, you know, does the, the degree actually really mean all that much? And to some companies it does and some it doesn't. So, um, I think it's a double-edged sword. It's like, uh, you know, you, you get, you get a lot of good with it, but then you also, uh, get some bad behaviors because they, they want, they want to be, there are often people that want to be able to forgo the interview, like, you know, mm-hmm. or, or the selection process or, or use it as a filtering criteria. 
Um, and I think that's a little bit broken, right? Um, and that might be where some of the uh, displeasure with certifications comes from, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, Chris, that you mentioned language and terminology. In my class, I define unit tests. I define refactoring. Yeah. As a technical coach, if I hear somebody saying they're doing a refactoring a couple of days in a row during the daily scrum, I'm going to ask them, which refactorings are you doing? Because refactoring should be, you know, narrowly targeted, fine-grained <laughs> changes to the code. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, if you if you can say, I am refactoring to a strategy pattern to accommodate the yeah. new variations and code that need to be there, that's that I can infer a lot about what you're doing. If you're just saying, I'm refactoring the the stuff that deals with the new component that we need, all of a sudden, you know, st it, it it uh diminishes the quality of the communication and mm -hmm. um and so that's yeah that that i think is really important especially when people when um like newer developers want to be taken seriously i think that uh there's there's this tendency to throw vocabulary out the window or or even you know uh you know a, a coach being respected in an environment if they know the if they know those terms, they're they're going to be a lot better off when when asking for a retrospective to happen or or talking about those things. And so, even if you're a non technical coach referring to something technical, uh, then understanding what refactoring means would could mean all the difference in the world for the level of respect that a, that a coach may get from a team, and therefore their effectiveness is directly impacted by their use of the, that vocabulary. Yeah. And, and that's exactly why I am focused on the Scrum Developer Training is that I see a lot of coaching, a lot of organizations imposing process and structure on the teams and not really arming them with the ability to deliver in a, you know, quick iterative manner on the software solutions. And that's all the extreme programming magic that we figured out yeah. 20 plus years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe uh, this conversation's helped maybe crystallize some things in my mind is understanding what, I mean, and for me, before coming into this conversation, what I definitely saw is that a lot of certification courses in the Agile space, especially a lot of the technical ones I've seen, um, have some excellent uh, content, excellent practices you try out and learn and exposure, you say, vocabulary exposure. Um uh, like for me, it was game changing. So it was always like, oh, yeah, certification is like a wrapper around good training, you know, um, mm -hmm. and good uh, experiences. Um, and maybe the certification part, uh, maybe my hypothesis is, is just understanding what it is and what it isn't. Um, and I think so, for example, if you take uh, certified scrum master training, it sounds very authoritative, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has the word master in it has the word certified in it. Um, and um, I'm just Googling online and I can see that some certifications have a lot, uh, like in other disciplines, have a lot of uh, strict, you know, timelines and things that you must do mm -hmm. to be, you know, you know, qualified for that certification. Where a two-day Scrum Master course is not that, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's pretty light. Um, and so it doesn't mean... Uh, so it doesn't mean you're an expert, but it also doesn't mean, uh, but it also does mean that, like you said, Chris, you've been exposed to some terminology, <laughs> right? Yeah. For two you days. Know, maybe, maybe you went into the, what'd you say? Yeah. yeah for two days. For two days, right. Yeah, you've been exposed to terminology. Some people in that certification course may 
come into it with really good good intent soak it all up and it's like the kickstart to uh you know an awesome agile journey some people may hardly pay attention past the scantron and add it to their resume right <laughs> and so yeah. um and with the intention of not really trying to learn just trying to beef up the resume or something like that and so i think it's it's almost like certifications good or bad it's like well it depends how it's used and how it's done right you know and mm -hmm. so i could see someone misusing it to be like okay i came back from certification training now you all <laughs> listen to me i'm going to command and control tell everyone what to do because i know what scrum is or i know what tdd is and you don't you know what i mean like yeah. it's almost kind of you know um where where you could also use it for good like hey i've been exposed to some terminology i started my learning journey maybe i can share something with you now you know <laughs> yeah um, yeah, and I feel it's almost time for some of the historical aspect of certification here where, yeah, you know, pre-Agile in the 90s, I was taking classes at UC Irvine. I was taking classes at uh, Cal State Fullerton, extended education, like a whole semester on Windows technologies or object-oriented technologies, where it was like, you know, instructor going to class, doing homework, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of it, you would get this nice little printed certificate out of it. Yeah. And then slowly somewhere over time, and I don't know if it was like the Microsoft certified network engineer type things or whatever, it morphed into these two days, sit in a seat, you know, stay awake and you get certified. And there was a little bit of a transitional period. There was a thing called XP immersion that was offered in the late 90s, early 2000s. This was like the game changer for me. So like, Austin, you talk about having your eyes open. The one I attended was taught by like Kent Beck and Ron Jeffries and Chet Henderson and um, Chet Hendrickson and Martin Fowler was there. Craig Larman was there. It was five days, five days of lecture, hands-on coding. They had evening sessions. We were just like ensconced with the extreme programming folks the entire time learning this stuff. And there was no certification out of it. You know, we got, I got a t-shirt. <laughs> so <laughs> I still cherish that 20 year old t-shirt. I don't wear it. It's like, this is the proof that I really learned something valuable. <laughs> And then that one kind of tapered off, you know, financially, I'm not sure it was that viable. It was really intensive to get it done. And then around 2003, Scrum started to come up. And Ken right. Schwaber started to offer his Scrum Master training. $500, two days, shake his hand, you get certified. I mean, that was literally it back in 2003, 2005. And it started to take off. It really started to explode. And in order to put some structure and quality around that explosion, they started putting in the quizzes and all of this and that to make it be more than just showing up and getting that certification. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 And I think, and maybe, um, you know, we've kind of shared some, some opinions and thoughts on certifications in general, but one thing I do know is that um, there's your course and a couple of others who um, offer excellent extreme programming and mobbing uh, training um, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting is, uh, it's easy for me to name training um, that's really good for learning design patterns or learning refactoring or learning uh, mobbing or, or training. And a lot of those names include ones that are certified, you know, certified mm -hmm. Scrum developer courses. And so uh, there are some that I know of that uh, are not uh, through a certification of some kind, but a lot of them are really good. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Like what's, uh, maybe we can just start since the mob mentality show, what does ensembling look like in your uh, certified Scrum developer course? Yeah, well, I intentionally keep my courses small. In the Scrum Master and Product Owner world, it is not 
a big deal to go to a class with 50 people in it, uh. which I just, I don't know how you connect and learn in that kind of situation. Yeah, there's a lot of group activities, but the instructor themselves doesn't have eyes on what's going on there. So my class is usually capped out around 10, which to my mind is two mobs, which is still hard to like get eyes on, but I can see people in the code when they're doing something by hand where there's an automated refactoring, where they're, mm -hmm. you know, talking about code in a certain language, but they're not capturing that language in the code, you know, mm -hmm. suggesting a renaming of the variables or the methods or something like that. So that's where I find working together, getting, you know, maybe some of that breadth of experience out there, because I will have people with decades of experience and people that this is their first training fresh out of school, mm. you know, getting them to work together and realize that they don't have to do it on their own. Mm. You know, we always joke about that. Our entire lives were graded and told to do, do our work on our own. If we collaborate, we're cheating. You know, and yet <laughs> in the real world, it's not a cheat. You're upskilling yourselves, you're helping each other out, and you're probably moving faster. So that's really why I lean on it. In the older versions of the CSD, yeah, it was pairing. That was the only thing that was offered. But I quickly realized that getting together a group of three, four, five people, they're all going to enjoy themselves. I hear laughter. You know, that's one of the takeaways. It's like, was this fun? And it's like, yeah, it was fun. Go do that at work, you know, <laughs> take that yeah. back to work with you. And, and surprisingly, out of all the technical practices I've been teaching for four or five years, mobbing is one of the ones that takes off. One of the ones that I see companies adopting. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, nice. Right on. It's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. The, the flip side of that, though, is that I could talk to, you know, a dozen different people and the majority of them have never heard of mobbing. Yeah. You know, it just came up again today. It came up earlier this week. It's like mobbing still not as deeply known and aware and, you know, utilized as much as it could be. Nice. Nice. Yeah, and uh, maybe uh, getting into some detail will be interesting for me because I always, I always like how to hear how people introduce it. So, um, is it kind of like a lecture lab, and then the lab parts in mobs are the mm -hmm. mobs kind of static for the few days or a couple of days? Like it's like the same, you know, three <laughs> people or they're swapping around. Like, how, how do you structure all that? Yeah, <laughs> classic answer. It depends. It depends. Um, Perfect. The, the, yeah. the way I introduce it, though, is that I introduce it with a pair of programming subject because that was the traditional way. Okay. And in the XP days, pairing, that was extreme. That was like, you can't yeah. do that. How can I afford to spend two people's salary on one thing? And then I'm like, mm -hmm. well, what if we, you know, dialed the knobs up a little bit more and then introduce Woody, the hunter story, and talking about the fact that out of all the practices that they had, they had a production crisis come up and mobbing helped them out. You know, they were working together to deliver software and getting better at it. And here's what they discovered. Good. And then when we get into the actual practice, it kind of depends. You know, sometimes I will have a mixed group from different companies and they want to stay together. Sometimes it's based on language. Sometimes it's just like, you know, hit the breakout rooms and hit random and see what happens. Mm. So it really is up to the groups. Um, I will say, though, that I do get a number of non-coders into the class and they're just thrown into the group, too. You know, it's like when you're on the key keyboard, I just show them, you know, tell me what to type, tell me what to do. It should be the simplest thing. And I will get, you know, directors and QA folks that are like not developers, part of the group, talking about the problem we're trying to solve and how we can solve it as a group and seeing results, you know, not waiting for software to get come to them, seeing the results as they're building it. Nice. 
Yeah, um, it, it reminds me, you know, years ago, I think a number of coaches had told me that uh, the way that they got people to start pairing was to first tell them about mobbing. And they say, wow, <laughs> four people at a computer is too expensive. And they're like, well, some people do pairing, which is only two. Yeah. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, yeah, that's much more manageable. That sounds yeah. a lot better than four. So it's it's yeah. funny how, uh, how that was, it was kind of used as, as a thing. But yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, I also find in the class that, you know, with a public class of random individuals, you're not going to know how the personalities are going to play out. Yeah. And people mm -hmm. tend to be a little bit better behaved and polite in a group of three than maybe in a group of two. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I don't get some of those collisions that I've had in the past where I've tried pairing out previously. So I, I don't do pairing in any of the exercises unless it's like two people that want to do, you know, a PHP or something. For the most part, I'll get people that are like, I'm not a Python developer, but I want to see how this mobbing things works out. And we'll try that out. Nice, nice, nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, you kind of answered one of my questions as well, because you used to do it with pairs, right? In the same oh. uh, course, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, back in the day for mm -hmm. sure. But really, since I've been teaching it since 2018, I've only done the groups, the mobs. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Right. Yeah, on. because yeah. I... I'm an introvert, may not come across that way sometimes, but me one-on-one -on -one with another person, not as comfortable as just like chatting with a group of people. Ah, right on, nice. Very good. Well, maybe to transition topics um, after uh, getting through some of that stuff, is, uh, uh, is story splitting part of that course or is that kind of like a separate thing altogether? Um, yeah, no, so that is one of the, I don't know if it's one of the key learning objectives, but it's one of the things that I don't think most people appreciate mm. on how to get better at incremental development mm. is to take this big feature, and we've all seen the teams that struggle to get a story done in a sprint, take that big feature and figure out how to break it down into things that you can show progress on every day or so. Yeah. You know, So that's, that's even part of the mobbing practice that we do. Before we get hands on keyboard, it's like, here's the problem I want you to solve. Now let's take a step back. What's in scope? What's out of scope? How do we decompose it into pieces that we can then tackle and tackle with confidence that we know when we're done and we don't have to revisit it? Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think reflecting on my uh, mobbing experience, primarily in uh, working on, you know, production code, but also from, you know, uh, training events or like an ad hoc conference mob or something like that is it might be strong to say that being good at uh, story splitting is essential for uh, quality mobbing or quality development. Uh, it might, you know, I might struggle to say that, but it, man, it makes it way easier because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I feel like uh, there's like good chaos in a mob and then there's like bad chaos. And I feel like a version of bad chaos is when you walk into a team or a mob and you hand them something that's like, okay, here's this gigantic <laughs> thing, go. And the team doesn't really work out like what we're going to do first, what we're going to do second, what's our first experiment, what's our second one. And what can kind of happen is this kind of weird chaos where, you know, two people are running strong with like maybe the uh, yeah. back end security thing. And then another person in the mob keeps bringing up like, well, what, what's the UI going to look like? And then like, you're just kind of hopping between things in a non-cohesive way and um so like laying out like okay there's this big thing and it includes all these pieces you know what are we going to experiment with first you know and kind of working that out um 
that really uh, makes it go much smoother in my experience. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's one of the things that I've learned over the years as I've been teaching the course is that at the start it was, here's the problem, go solve it. And now it's more of, here's the problem, here's how I go about solving it. Mm. You know, because I just kind of have this ingrained nature of taking this thorny problem and teasing apart the different pieces and figuring how they're going to connect to each other. But I call that out now. You know, that's part of that things that we do without thinking about it to a beginner seem like magic, mm. you know, but if we take that time to say, okay, here's this problem, we're going to get, you know, data from a user somewhere, what could that look like, it's going to get a transformation here, and then it's going to get spat out, well, we can tease apart the inputs and the outputs and focus on the calculation engine portion of it, you know, we know we're going to have to deal with that, but that's another piece of the feature, that's not the primary piece of the feature that we're focusing on, so really helping them understand how to break problems down, and then even when we break it down, what's in scope, what's out of scope? What are the tests that we, we're going to write? Because I do teach test-driven development as part of this. It's not just saying, go do TDD. It's like, out of these tests, which ones do we write first? You know, leading on James Graining's zombies. It comes up every class because somebody will want to pick the hardest test as their first test. And I, I've learned, you know, don't do that. <laughs> you know, let's just start with the zero case. Let's yes. figure out what this looks like from an interface point, what it's going to spit out. We got the zero case solved. Now what happens when we've got like one thing in there? Let's start building the algorithm up from that. Yes. Yes. And uh, I was reading uh, Joshua Karieski's, uh new book, The Joy of Agility. And one thing mm -hmm. he said was uh, agility requires focus, saying no more often, stop starting, start finishing kind of thing. And I think that's what you're really trying to help a mob do is the same, like yeah. out of this huge thing, we're saying no to 99% of it right now. And we're focusing on just this one little piece, <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah, and... that's, that's a sub point for all of the exercises is that talk to the product owner. What do they really want? You know, they yes. presented you with this problem that is like everything that could be possibly done, but yes. it turns out they really, really need a very small sliver of it. Yes. Ask those right. questions. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then I think, because then, I mean, that is kind of the premise of, mobbing right is all the brilliant minds working on the same thing so you have to get them working on the same thing <laughs> as uh -huh. opposed to coming you know and then you can see all that uh, uh start to come together and uh yeah so i mean if you don't mind jumping into some uh detail uh you know as far as technique wise or what are what are some of your go-to techniques you teach uh, a group or a mob to story split yeah so um i i lean on mike cone's spider which um he Put out a blog post a while ago and did a video on it gosh i'm gonna say like seven years ago when i saw it but it really coalesced all these different strategies of tackling this big problem and talked about how do we break it down into like the paths that can go through the code you know how do we talk about the interfaces that may be in play when we're talking to something taking an example like you know it's got ingesting a lot of data and breaking it down into subsets of the data and the last piece, the R stands for rules, you know, talking about the happy path case. You would be surprised at the number of the developers that when they're presented with a problem, want to figure out the exception cases, you know, want to solve for negatives and all of that. And I'm like, no, focus on the value. Negative path testing is pretty simple, and it's actually not the most valuable part. Let's deliver something that could actually deliver value first. Mm. Yeah, so I do that. I also do um, example mapping. Uh, pick that up from Matt Wynn a while ago. And again, this has been around five plus years and most people don't know about it. 
But what I find with example mapping is if I've got a story and I start spelling out the rules that are going to go into implementing that story, the examples for those rules almost one-to-one -one turn into unit tests. Mm. You know, they're almost directly test cases that I need to implement. And that really helps teams understand that this bigger problem that I have is actually a finite number of tests. And when, I, when I'm done with the tests, the story is probably done. And if all the tests are passing, then I'm pretty confident that the story is implemented and working. You know, so just a lot, I think the feeling behind behind what I'm doing is that when I first started learning extreme programming, I got pretty darn confident in what I was delivering, that I wasn't worried about it going in production. I wasn't worried about people poking at it. We had been working on it, building up the safety net of all the tests around it. And when it's done, it's done. Let's move on to the next thing. And just trying to impart that, you know, little bit of wisdom and experience to people that are still in the I'm afraid to touch this code mode. You know, they just, they don't want to mm -hmm. break anything. They're, they're scared of what could happen because they don't have that, that backing behind them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe I got a question for both of you. Um, so story splitting, like getting it into different chunks, like you said, different examples, or I, I, I you know, go to for me a lot is that spider uh, uh, diagram and that picture. So I'll have to uh, put that in the show notes as well. But um Something that I've been struggling with more that almost feels like gut feel, and, and maybe this is like uh, uh, advanced uh, scrum developer uh, th thinking or something, but because um, like I feel like when you're just learning story splitting, the act of splitting it and being like, oh, yeah, there are these different pieces we can work on. And that corresponds to this test and this test red, green refactor cycle. And oh, now we can move on to the next one. But a challenging problem that it, I, it's hard for me to share on is because it's more by gut feel is it, like in a real world, you are given a big old thing and you can start to split it, but then it becomes like, well, what, what piece do we work on first? Uh -huh. um, you know, so I guess uh, I would like your guys' hot takes on uh, how do you pick the prior, you know, what, how to prioritize the first thing to go after once you're starting to slice it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let, I'll let Chris chime in before I have my <laughs> Oh, Paul, Paul, you can go first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well, so for me, uh, there there is like the, so if the product owner, you know, and, and, uh, and the business in general cannot bear to have any less than a certain number of features, right? Um, then I like the diagram in the Lean UX book, which talks about uh, the highest uh, risk, highest value. And so, um, or the highest risk, highest unknown. So it's like a four-way yeah. axis. Um, and you want the highest risk and highest unknown, but t developers tend to greenfield a MVP solution in the in the lowest risk, highest unknown, right? And what you get is, all of the all of the timeline risk is is backloaded. It's basically at the very end of the project you do the hardest stuff, and that's that's just a fundamental anti pattern. So, um, so if it's a minimum viable product and it can't be deployed in any smaller subset, always do the most highest risk, highest unknown, the most difficult thing first, um, because then you could decide to stop doing the project way early it, rather than saying, okay, well, this is what the button's going to look like. And, you know, we can make sure we can click the button. And by the time you get to the algorithm you want to run, it's like way too late. And now you've, you've doomed the project, so to speak. Um, so there's a minimum viable product. 
and convincing the business to bring it down as far as possible uh, than using the lean UX, like highest risk, highest unknown, knock those out. Um, and then if you're in kind of a feature slicing where you can deliver thin vertical slices after an MVP is out, um, I tend to like uh, uh, doing um, feature flag by user if it's a multi-tenant system and uh, and then being able to roll roll out small portions of features to subsets of users gradually over time. So, um, you know, I, I think Etsy is known for doing a, a, an extreme version of this, but, but then you can get like really small increments out of even, you know, a subset. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's like mainly strategically in my head, I, I work through maximize discovery until deployable, then maximize uh, iterations. Yeah, Chris, I mean, that was exactly where I was thinking was like, identify the risks and uncertainties and tackle them first. Yep. You know, if we know how to do something great, but that's not where the, the real challenge is going to come up. And then the other thing that I look for that's kind of off from what you were mentioning is, is there a way to parallelize any of the work? Can we identify interfaces and coupling and put a split on that and have things broken up that way so we can get more things working in parallel than just waiting for a sequence of things to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And I think, <clears throat> I think that's the struggle for me a little bit is I, I think, you know, so we recently went through this in my mob and it, there were two things going on at once. We were learning how to work in a new technology, like the nuts and bolts of how you do a TDD loop in this new framework, basically, for example, right? But then at the same time, there was quite a bit of unknowns at the same time. And so it it, it felt easier to the like, hey, let's do the simplest feature in <laughs> TDD so we can just get the flow. And I think we did do that just so we like got our feet wet. Yeah. But we didn't do that very long. And then for a significant amount of time, we were you know, floundering around in R&D land where you run an experiment, it doesn't work because you're trying to figure out how to do something that's kind of new and novel or hasn't been done before or whatever, right? And that's not like a tight little TDD loop in a lot of cases because you're just mm -hmm. like, well, we don't even know how this technology works. And so you run an experiment and find out and you can kind of guide it by test as you go. Um, and so I think I almost, you know, there's almost like, uh, what's your goal, right? So for example, in a course, like what you run, Paul, yeah. you may not want to throw them in the deep end of giving them a problem they've never, <laughs> Oh yeah, some I, new I, novel I absolutely, problem. I'm, I'm, I'm upfront about that, that this is, the problems are intentionally simple. Yes. Yeah, They're yeah, just yeah. a scaffolding that we hang the practices on. Nice. Um, so the, the problems are intended to be solved in an hour or so. Yes. If we don't get to it, we don't get to it. But that's part of it, too. It's the learning that we take away from right. it. Right. But I do talk to the group that, you know, yeah. we've got Kata sites out there. We've got a different practices. But what I do when I'm doing some of my practice, um, are you familiar with Advent of Code? No, not me. So every December, I don't know who the group is, every December at midnight East Coast time, which is 9 p.m. our time, December 1st through December 25th, they release a coding challenge. And they're intentionally obscure the language is kind of confusing and they tend to do like multiple pieces together so it's not just a simple write some unit testing you've done it's usually ingest some data transform it perform calculations on it and then split out an answer and to me that really helps clarify how the different things fit together how i'm going to break mm -hmm. it down talking about those connections i can easily see that oh you know here i've got a dictionary of a string to a number 
And everything mm -hmm. on the left of it is one calculation, everything on the right. And I can just, you know, split up the development that way. So I, I really tackle it more as TDD and problem solving training than, you know, people treat it as like code speed. So you people see people solving these problems in like two minutes. And I'm like, you know, bless you. But that's not the point for me. The point is to get better at taking these gnarly problems that have yeah. like imprecise language and figuring out what is really meant here. How can I write a test to prove that out? And that's yeah. some of my practice when people are saying that, you know, solving things about how many leap years old you are, or, you know, talking about ISBN calculations of checksums. It's like, yeah, those are practices. But if you want to get into something more real, take a look at this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Oh, that, that's great. No, I love it. And I think, yeah, and it almost seems like you need to, you know, just like with learning anything, if you are learning too many things at once, it's too much to handle. Yeah. So maybe, you know, like to yeah. learn how to story split and TDD loop, the simpler stuff lets you uh, build the mechanics, almost like the shuha re moment for when uh -huh. you can use those same uh, splitting skills for uh, splitting a difficult R&D well, set of experiments, right? Yeah. <laughs> so in, in your example, I think. Yeah. It, you, you could argue that the big, the highest risk, highest unknown is whether or not you could create a solid TDD loop before investing more in the technology, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I you could argue that that was following the highest risk, highest unknown uh, I see. paradigm yeah. because you're, you're saying, because, you, yeah. you know, I, I think what I heard was we're uncomfortable with the testing system. So let's become comfortable with that. And then we're we're gonna go tackle the next thing that we're uncomfortable with, which I think is what you're supposed to do. Um, if you're if you're feeling confident about what you're working on, while there's stuff that you feel uneasy about, that's that's the litmus test. That's the problem moment where you're like, okay, we should be working on the stuff we're uncomfortable with now, so that we're not at the end of the project and yes. trying to figure out how to make the core of it work. Like that, that's yes. <laughs> that's what I've seen happen all too often. It's like. Um, you know, facade development. Uh, there's a there's a developer that I ran into, and I was asked to look at their code. This was a long time ago, before mobbing, and it was like everything was just like label one thousand five, label one thousand six, <laughs> label one thousand seven, and it like only certain options and drop downs were working. But they were like talking about it as if everything was going fine, and and the reality was they were like at the end of their timeline and they basically had none of the like real meat of the functionality they had a bunch of ui that pretended to be working yeah. um and i think people just tend like i don't i don't think necessarily it was their fault per se i think it was it was a trap of the system mm -hmm. and yeah. and so i think it takes experience to um to understand that you know while you'll get quick easy rewards you know it's it's like binging on candy versus like eating a diet of of salads right <laughs> it's like you're, you're gonna you're gonna see you know it's gonna be painful up front to eat the salad often but but your your long term is gonna look a lot better than if you just binge mm -hmm. on candy constantly right yeah um and so you know that's that's just it like it's a discipline it's the realization of the discipline that I think is important um and, and so I think that gut feeling did did come out there. So while it might have been an easier problem to solve, it was arguably a more important problem, a higher risk problem to the, yeah. to the life 
of that technology in your project. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And, and Austin, to some of your question about the mechanics of what I'm doing, you know, realizing here we are in 2023, 10 years ago, I would have made an assumption that every developer knows what TDD is, whether they do it or not. But in 2023, I don't think that's the case. It's yeah. not taught in school. The wave of people that learn TDD are kind of aging out. And when people are presented with a problem, they're just told, you know, here's your story, go work on it. So the mechanics of my introduction of TDD is just like getting everybody in a cyber dojo classroom setting and going, you know, here's what's going on. What tests are we going to write? Enumerating the tests as a list before we write any code. You know, it's not just getting in and writing code. It's figuring out what path we're going to take. And then yeah. literally writing one test first and just enough code to make it pass. Yeah. You know, and, and I get feedback that it's like, oh, I've never seen TD, TDD actually done. You know, I, I kind of knew what unit tests were, but I didn't know what TDD was. <clears throat> and yeah. so it, it's like all the practices, you don't have to use them all the time. But having that awareness of when they're going to help you out and having the ability to bring them to hand without struggling with it is really what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Then, uh, and that's part of the semantic diffusion, right? You, you'll see the 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 term TDD or test-driven development a lot, but then when you get yeah. into the nitty-gritty, it's like, oh, what you think TDD was was something completely different than <laughs> what I yeah what I know it as, and that, that and that's fine. Um, we are coming close to time. Um, yeah. Did you want to give your quick soundbite on the hole in Scrum before we close out? Is that possible? Or I, I actually have time? a talk on it. I, I can send you the link for that. But basically, okay. Scrum is a framework. The word software appears in the Scrum Guide exactly once. And where it appears, it says basically Scrum is trying to move away from software. So there's, there's this glaring hole in the middle of the Scrum framework, which is what does the team do every day after the daily Scrum? You know, they've, they've spent their 15 minutes doing their daily Scrum, then what? Scrum doesn't tell them what to do, which is where I, as a technical coach, bring these practices from extreme programming and beyond to help them fill in that hole. Nice. Like it. All right. Well, uh, you know, we are coming up on time here. And uh, I just wanted to ask, do you have anything that you'd like to promote or share before we close it out? <laughs> Um, my partners at Rocket Nine would love for me to promote all my trainings and stuff. I'll send you the links for that. But really, it's just more getting together, learning from each other, getting better at what we're doing, whether it's certified or not. You know, I think there's just so much we can learn from each other, regardless of where you're at in your career. All right. And uh, if you, uh, you know, for our audience out there, if you know anybody that's uh, in the middle of getting a certification and maybe feel not confident about it, or if you know a hiring manager that only relies on certifications for hiring or, uh, or anywhere in between, please share this episode with them. I think it would be good. Um, and then be sure to like and subscribe and ring the notification bell. Uh, you know, thanks, Paul, for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to uh, having you all back next time. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.